0: Lift off. We have a lift off. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here on Atlanta's Evening News on WSB. I, we've next two hours, we've just got a cavalcade of stories. You're not going to want to miss any of it because there's a lot to catch up on uh, with the Memorial Day weekend. The president's tweets and more, including the emergency spending package, or I shouldn't say emergency spending package, the disaster relief package. Uh, Very interesting to see so many of my friends here in Georgia attacking one of my very best friends. Uh, who happens to be a congressman from Texas, Chip Roy, who filed the original objection last week, last Friday. I played the audio for you of what he said on the floor of the House of Representatives. And uh, today, Thomas Massey uh, redid the objection. Other Republicans coming to the floor as well. And uh, now that Chip's done it, I want to walk you through that. Also, big day in the Supreme Court, uh, Clarence Thomas just unloading on eugenics and abortion. Uh, the phone number here, 404-872-0750, one wsb We'll get to the ethics investigation into Stacey Abrams. Gonna be a big deal, the way they're acting, you can kinda tell they know they're responsible for something that's gonna get him in trouble. But first, let's go back to the issue with Chip Roy in Congress, because in South Georgia, I've got a number of friends who live in South Georgia, and they're livid over Chip, uh, objecting to the disaster relief package on Friday. Now. In point of fact, the, the measure sailed through the Senate, sight unseen. Few people had a chance to look at it. And then the House, it came over to the House. They had made some changes before the Senate passed it out that no one was even aware of. And so Chip slowed it down by objecting to passage by unanimous consent. And I understand my friends in South Georgia who have been waiting for this money. It looked like it was a done deal. And suddenly, not only is it not a done deal, but they're going to have to wait another week to get the money uh, from Congress. I totally understand that. And to some degree, though, it, it, it's very interesting to me to see friends who are deeply principled on the issue of limited government. And yet when it comes to their money, um, they've decided that, you know, that they're in the right and and it doesn't conflict with their principles because they need the money. This is a legitimate use of government. And I've got friends who aren't in South Georgia, not in disaster relief area. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're willing to support the money. And in fact, most of the Republicans, save for a few who are objecting, are people who will ultimately probably support the passage of the legislation because they do recognize that South Georgia, Florida, Alabama and, and other areas do need the disaster relief, including Puerto Rico. Now, what all of this is about, maybe I should back up and, and just review very basically for you. South Georgia has a lot of devastation still regarding the hurricane that sailed through last August. What was it, Michael, I think? Um, right before the election. And I guess it was October of last year. And if you go down to South Georgia right now, you will see a lot of crops that uh, are failing to recover you'll see peach orchards and pecan groves that are in ruin. You will see a lot of houses, a lot of barns, a lot of grain silos that have blue tarps on them still that have not been repaired. Now, most of us in the Atlanta area and in out of Georgia, including my friend Chip and Thomas Massey in Kentucky and others, they haven't been down there. They haven't seen the damage. They they don't understand. And that's part of the frustration from people in South Georgia is they feel forgotten. That they are pawns in a political fight and all they want is the recovery money that their tax dollars went to pay for, by the way, and that they want that money. If there is a chief signature lesson in this, it is that states should not be beholden to the federal government for bailouts. States should themselves uh, bank aside some money for disaster relief. And in fact, Georgia has banked aside some, uh, just not as much as what is needed. The, I mean, the hurricane was really more devastating down there than I think a lot of people realize if you haven't been down there. And so these farmers are very, very upset with my friendship. And, and I got to tell you, when I say my friendship, I'm I'm not, you know, a lot of people in politics will say, oh, well, I went to dinner with this guy one time, so I'm going to refer to him as my friend. No, oh, uh, When I go to Texas, I stay with with Chip and his family. Uh, we hang out together all the time. We text message on a daily basis. Uh, his kid puts my wife on the prayer list at their church every month. Uh, we are, we're actually good friends, and I will defend him a million percent on this. He is a good, principled guy. And if this happened in Texas or Georgia, he would object to it. And the reason he would object to it is because he has a, a strident, uh, long, uh, vehement – uh, antagonism towards the growth of the federal government and out of control spending in Washington. Yes, I will say it again. If this had happened in Texas, Chip would have done the same thing. Uh, I, I know him well enough to know he would do it and he would know that it would probably cost him votes in his own district and he would do it because he believes it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to slow down the gravy train from Washington. And yes, in fact, part of this disaster bill is gravy train. It's not all for disaster relief. And that is what the abridged media narrative fails to tell people. There's way more in this package than just disaster relief. It's billed as disaster relief. It's supported as disaster relief. But there's additional spending in it. And his point is two things. One, we now have what the New York Times calls a crisis on the southern border. And the Democrats forced the Republicans to strip all the money out of, of the disaster relief to deal with that that disaster. And two, we have a $22 trillion national debt, and no one is concerned with where any of the money is coming from or not coming from to pay for this package. He doesn't oppose paying farmers $19 billion uh, to make them whole based on a natural disaster. He doesn't oppose that. What he does oppose is saddling our future generations with a lot of debt, and our Congress is continuing to do this. Consider that Congress wants to pass $19 billion for farmers in South Georgia and Florida, North Florida for the disaster relief of the hurricane, and then they also want to pass $16 billion for farmers for the president's tariffs, the, the fallout for the president's tariffs. At some point we gotta figure out why are we spending all this money. And also, by the way, again, this is worth noting, and it's completely lost in the media narrative, that a lot of the money that's in this nineteen billion dollar disaster relief package is not actually for disaster. And if we're gonna spend money and say it's for disaster, the money we spend should be for the disaster. And I think he's right on that. At least in this regard, Congress shouldn't be passing this by unanimous objection or by unanimous consent after every member has left the building. They should at least force the members to be there and put on record their vote for this package, and I think that's right, and I realize it gives my friends in South Georgia a lot of heartburn, and they're really angry, and they have every right to be angry because they've been held hostage to a political fight in Washington, and I understand that, and I don't want to minimize their anger. But I also think we need to actually force Congress to have these conversations. And this is the first opportunity we've had to force this fight in Congress because they haven't dealt with any spending issues this year. This is the first big one. Um, I, I, listen, this this is a debate to be had, I guess. But the issue is that, that Chip and now Thomas Massey today from Kentucky, they're forcing the debate to be had as opposed to putting off another fight for another day putting off this fight for another day when another crisis comes. And, and I think, too, in fairness to Chip and Thomas Massey and the other members of the Republican Party who, by the way, they've been fighting this issue against their own party. It's not just that they're suddenly winning. Chip, of course, wasn't there. He only just got elected. But Thomas Massey's been fighting this fight, even when the Republicans were in the majority, that every time a spending package comes along, there's always a crisis that demands the money immediately and no one ever wants to have the conversation about how do we pay for it. It's always, we have to have this money immediately. Someone needs it immediately. Someone's hurt somewhere. we got to fund the money. Well, this is the very first package this year that's come along where It was set up so that anyone could object and force a conversation on spending, and that's what they're doing, Uh, and, and I agree with them on that, and the farmers in South Georgia are going to get the money. It is going to pass, but it's going to now pass by having a conversation about where the money's coming from and how they're actually spending it now on another big issue in washington dc today the supreme court has put in place allowed to go into place an indiana law that will require that the remains of fetuses or the remains of children remains of homo sapiens the human species must be buried or cremated after an abortion planned parenthood argued that this case was an affront to a woman's right to an abortion Here's what's getting lost in the media conversation, and you know, I, I, f- I say this all the time now, but I feel like I, I, I'm a broken record. All the all the things the media is failing not to report because they're so interested in narratives and not facts. This is what everyone is mis- missing in the Supreme Court ruling today. By the way, it was seven to two. Why was it seven to two? Why did Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer join the majority in this case? Why? Hmm. Maybe because it wasn't about abortion, per se. Here's the fact: um, the case was argued not on abortion grounds. It was a case where no one argued in court that it placed an undue uh, uh, undue burden on women to have an abortion. In fact, it does no such thing. If it places a burden on anyone, it places an abor- a burden on abortion providers, not on women, because it doesn't impede a woman's right to have an abortion. What it does is it says that the remains are human remains, regardless of which stage of, of um, biology, they are human remains, and they must be disposed of as human remains. And abortion providers did not like that. They essentially treated them as as um, hospital waste, and there was no care given as to how they were disposed. And this law says you got to uh, treat them as human remains, so burial or cremation. And the Supreme Court, seventy-two, Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer, siding with the majority, said this isn't about an abortion. Essentially, what's going on here is status quo and that Breyer and Kagan are in the majority on this is probably the best indication yet that the Supreme Court is going to decide Georgia's law and Alabama's laws are unconstitutional. How's that? Well, stick around and I'll explain. The phone number here, 404 872 750 1800 wsb talk I, I got to tell you guys, uh, I am a, a big fan of the North Georgia mountains and I think that uh, the North Georgia mountains do not get as much attention as say people in Georgia want to go up to the highlands and I got a ton of friends at church who all have homes up in the highlands. I don't make enough money to afford a home in the highlands. One day I want to make enough money to get a house on Lake Burton though, but uh, Blue Ridge and Blairsville and that area, it is beautiful. And we took the kids up there, and I gotta tell you, this is actually a relevant news item. There is a story out in the AJC the other day, and, and Doug Turnbull has talked about this now. The express lanes are saving people a ton of time getting home in the evening. Some of you listening right now are on the express lane. Others of you are looking at the people on the express lane enviously because you haven't got your ticker, your, your sticker to get on the express lane. And every time I talk about this, a couple of malcontented souls email me angrily that their tax dollars paid for this road, they should be allowed to drive on the road. And actually, that's not actually true. The way the bonds were uh, financed to be able to pay for these, the toll revenue is going to go to pay for them. It's not your run-of-the-mill tax revenue. So I, I have people who call them Lexus lanes, and they email me angrily whenever I talk up the toll lanes. I'm a big fan of toll lanes. I wish we had more toll lanes in the state. I think the Golden Isle Parkway from Macon down to St. Simons that that cuts through the swamps, that should be a toll lane and there should be no speed limit on it. We should be able to go unlimited speed on that road and get to St. Simons in an hour. But that's not the way things are right now. Nonetheless, the DOT did a very good job on these. And the North Express, like this is my first time to ride on them, going up to um, Blue Ridge, by the way, as an aside, the number of people who texted me throughout the weekend to make sure I was alive because the speaker <laughs> represents Blue Ridge, I thought was very funny. Um, but the it's it just it, it, was, it was a great experience. Uh, the DOT should be commended for these lanes. Uh, they speed up traffic. Uh, it, what was so terrible, though, is that while I was doing the show on Friday, I actually, during commercial break, had to step out and call the doctor because I thought I must have a detached retina. And, and I, I'm not one to do that, but I couldn't see out of the periphery of my eye. I could hold my arm out to the side and I could not see my arm. I was like, oh, my wife had this happen. Lots of floaters can't see out of the side of my eye. This is a problem. And by the time it was over, I realized I'm having a migraine. And I spent the evening throwing up and then had to settle my stomach as best I could and take medicine to get over the migraine to then drive my kids to Blue Ridge where my wife already was on her motorcycle and haul the kids and the dog up there. But once we got there, it was a great weekend, although I'm sunburned now because we floated down the Tacoa and I washed off all the sunscreen. Back it is, Eric Erickson here. I left you dangling with a tease that I never got to, largely because of the clock. I only had about a minute and a half, and I didn't want to break this in on on why I think the Supreme Court today is signaling they're going to declare Georgia's uh, fetal heartbeat law unconstitutional. And I think, uh, by the way, there's a prevailing consensus among uh, people that that probably is the case. Not necessarily those who science, uh, support the law. A lot of those who support the law really think they they dotted all the I's and, and crossed all the T's to make the law constitutional. But that's in a world where when you read the Roe versus Wade and then the, the Casey decision, you work your way backwards based on what they said, and you build the law around the concerns of the court uh, that can restrict abortion and it, that plays on that. But we're not dealing with a, a court that is anything other than a partisan instrument. And you have a lot of justices on the Supreme Court who are, upset at the idea of of rocking the status quo. And right now the status quo is for abortion rights in this country. And you saw that with Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan today. They sided with the majority of the, with all the conservatives, Uh, it was a 7-2 decision, allowing part of an Indiana law to stand. And that part of the law that they allowed to stand was a part of the law that said abortion providers must dispose of the remains of an aborted child uh, with respect via burial or cremation. That law, that case was not argued on abortion rights. No one argued that that would impede a woman's right to have an abortion because it wouldn't. It doesn't deal with an abortion. It deals with the after effects of abortion. And so uh, Kagan and Breyer sided. Now, of course, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and and Sonia Sotomayor are true believers, and they they said, oh, this has to do with abortion. It's an unfettered constitutional right. What's so interesting here is that abortion is not in the Constitution uh, by any way, shape, or form, and yet uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor basically said, you can't restrict it in any way, shape, or form because it's a constitutional right, and yet they don't take that position on guns. So all of this is to say Kagan and Breyer are in the John Roberts camp of not wanting to disrupt the status quo. And the status quo legally is that there can be some restrictions around the parameters of abortion without actually encroaching on abortion itself. So you probably are going to see more health standards for abortion clinics. The Supreme Court has gone back and forth on that in the last year, but the the trend lines are for uh, standards for abortion clinics because they're performing a medical procedure. They have to have the same standards that other outpatient facilities have to have. And you're seeing something like this where uh, the remains have to be disposed of as if they're disposing of a human being because they are. The court will let you have that. But I don't think we're going to see the court uphold uh, Alabama or Georgia's laws or Missouri's law because those laws encroach too much into the status quo. One of the current members of the Supreme Court has told me to my face that he thinks John Roberts is a safe seventh vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. In other words... John Roberts doesn't want to, the Supreme Court Chief Justice doesn't want to drag the court to the right in a way that completely upends the current status quo in American politics until we've moved past Trump. And once we move past Trump, then maybe he will, but that would require another two people on the Supreme Court, or at least another one person on the Supreme Court who's willing to overturn Roe. Roberts does not want to be the fifth vote to overturn Roe. He wants to have two other people there voting to overturn Roe before he signs on as the seventh vote to overturn Roe. Now, interestingly enough, Clarence Thomas may have signaled a path forward for abortion uh, opponents in a way that abortion rights activists will have a hard time combating and I hope that the legislature in Georgia and Alabama and elsewhere takes notice of this if their laws are struck down by the Supreme Court which I presume they will be at this point seeing this case today and that is this Clarence Thomas agreed with the majority but issued a concurrence saying they should have gone further the court this really wasn't up for debate they let the they let a lower court order stand uh throwing out these throwing out this law part of the law that prohibited abortion based on uh, race, gender, disability, etc. And Clarence Thomas said, this is eugenics, and we've got to do something about it. And his concurrence was pretty compelling. So compelling, in fact, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to take him to task, but could not take him to task on this part. She she refused to even engage him on this argument. And that is Clarence Thomas's argument, and this is where abortion opponents need to pay attention. Thomas says... It should be unconstitutional to allow the extermination of human beings based on their gender or race or disability or ability. In other words, you can't have sex-based abortions or race-based abortions. Particular sex and more particular about disability that in some other countries like Iceland, for example, they're bragging about wiping out Down syndrome populations abortion. Women in Iceland, if they're if they're told that their child is going to have Down syndrome, they are encouraged and incentivized by the state to have an abortion. Some ethicists in Iceland are suggesting that women should be forced to have abortions if they have a Down syndrome child because it will otherwise be the state's burden to care for that child and that's unfair to the taxpayers. They're actually making that argument. Right now, though, they're just encouraged. They're given incentive to do it. And Thomas is saying, under our Constitution, under our 14th Amendment, that should be prohibited. And I think he's sending a red flag, and I think you could get John Roberts to go along with that. You could probably get Kagan and Breyer to go along with that. And you would have a real hard time getting Hollywood Studios to oppose it. Now, so, this is clearly, it is clearly, clearly coordinated PR. What's happening here? The drip, drip, drip of stories. You notice how we can't get away from the abortion story, the, the fetal heartbeat law story in Georgia? Because every couple of days as the story dies down, something else happens. This is all by design. It is progressive activists and PR firms playing the press in Georgia like fiddle. The press can't help but report these stories. Most of the people in the press oppose the law, too. You need to understand Georgia and Ashley, most members of the press oppose this law because most members of the press are to the left of the American public on abortion. You don't have to believe me. Believe Pew Research, one of the best pollsters in the country, has shown people who identify themselves as reporters tend to be on the left on this particular issue. And so they can't help but joyously report on the news that some other Hollywood studio possibly is going to walk away from Georgia. But what is the actual news story? that Netflix isn't doing anything. That's the actual news story. Netflix is doing nothing. Netflix is sending a press release to a Democratic PR firm to circulate in the media to say that if the law goes into effect, Netflix will reconsider what it is doing. That's it. So if the law goes into effect, Netflix will reconsider What it's doing in Georgia, not that it will stop what it's doing in Georgia, but that it will reconsider what it's doing in Georgia and in the meantime is given some money to the ACLU to fight the law. That's it. That's all that's happening. This this is a PR effort. I mean, a, a, the drip, drip, drip of these stories. Folks, you don't go through news cycles where the story keeps going. The law was was signed weeks ago, and now every three or four days you get another story about another Hollywood studio saying, if the law goes into effect, we'll reconsider what we're doing. These stories are being dribbled out over time as a partisan effort. The media is willfully reporting these, dutifully reporting these, I should say. And it's all designed for the 2020 election in Georgia. That's what this is. It is a PR effort organized by Democrats using the media that is already against this law to help further their cause. Members of the media are just being used as pawns, Some, in some cases willfully and knowingly, to dribble out these stories. I'm, I listen, I've done this for a living. I was a campaign operative for a number of years. I can see that one of these are coordinated when every four to five days you have a new story that comes out that allows the media to take a new angle on the story to keep the story going. That is a professional operation at play here. That's what's happening. And you should understand that what is the story today? That Netflix is doing nothing. And that's not what the media is telling you. What the media is telling you is what the PR outfit knows the media will tell you. Is that Netflix is saying that if the law goes into effect, Netflix may consider doing something possibly but makes no guarantee or promise, which is the status quo. Nothing's changing. And you wouldn't know that from the way the, the stories are being reported out there in the press nationally or anywhere else. But that's it. That's what you need to know. This is a PR effort. It has all the makings of a PR effort. It is designed to allow these stories. I guarantee you, in three or four days, we'll have Disney come out and say something very similar, that if this law goes into effect, we may reconsider what we're doing in Georgia, and they're not actually going to do something. And then four or five days later, you'll have another Hollywood studio come out. Maybe AMC come out and say, if this law goes into effect, we'll reconsider. And then a few more to end, this story will keep going and keep going and keep going. And essentially, what every story will be about is that nothing is actually happening. Nothing is going to happen. It's just a democratic effort to scare people to make them think that you got to vote for Democrats in 2020 and every four or five days we're going to have a new studio come out and say the same thing something may happen if something else happens possibly maybe but maybe not and the media will report it as if it's a big deal when all it is is the status quo It is Eric Erickson here. Your phone calls, 404 872 750 wsb talk If you want to be part of the show, Stacey Abrams uh, under investigation by the state of Georgia, uh, the State Ethics Commission. Of course, the Democrats are saying it's a partisan witch hunt. Of course, they're saying it is Brian Kemp using his tools to harass Stacey Abrams. But they're also admitting They're admitting there are problems in their denunciation of the investigation. I want to spend some time with this investigation. You know, I was an election lawyer in Georgia. I dealt with campaign finances. I was also an elected official in Georgia. I know the disclosure rules in Georgia. There have long been questions about Stacey Abrams, and it looks like they're catching up to her, and her campaign and the outside groups are all screaming, screaming in ways they wouldn't be. If there wasn't a there there, and even Democrats believe there's a there there, I'll tell you what I know, even from talking to some Democrats right now, though, I got to tell you, I know some of you are worried about this because I've gotten the emails from you. What are they going to do? You'll recall the tragedy of Notre Dame uh, burning. Well, the French Senate, I forgot there was a Senate. I just thought they had a president in France. The the French Senate has passed a law uh, that the president of France is not allowed to rebuild Notre Dame except to make it look like... It did. Uh, The president of France had toyed with the idea of modern updates for the times. Uh, The French people were outraged by the French president who wanted an international design competition. And the French Senate say, nope, you have to build it just like it was and we'll give you the money so you can have it done by the time the Olympics are here in 2024. Good job, French Senate. I'm surprised you didn't surrender. Off. We have a down Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, Atlanta's on WSB the phone number if you'd like to be a part of the program 404 872 WSB talk there is big news this evening coming out of Atlanta Georgia with national implications uh Stacy Abrams is uh, being investigated as the AJC's Greg Bluestein and James Saulzer says a broad Georgia ethics probe the head of Georgia's Ethics Commission filed a spate of subpoenas targeting groups led by Stacey Abrams and the chairwoman of the state Democratic Party, prompting criticisms he's trying to exact political revenge against Republican Governor Brian Kemp's political votes. Now, that's what they always say about the only person who can't say that these days is Jim Beck because it's the Trump administration indicting him. But if it were a Democrat who were in, in the White House right now, Jim Beck would be saying it. Uh, This is what Abrams and, and Abrams allies are saying that this is a, a political witch hunt against Abrams, except, 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 except even folks close to Abrams are saying that, well, they want to offer full cooperation to clear up any technical violations. Abrams' attorneys, let me just read you this paragraph. Abrams' attorney has vigorously denied the claim and said that investigators have failed to prove any wrongdoing and offered full cooperation to clear up any technical violations, any. Technical violations. In fact, the head of the state ethics commission uh, says investigators intend to present evidence that the Abrams campaign accepted donations from four outside groups that exceeded maximum contribution limits from statewide campaigns. Uh, there would be your technical violations. They accepted more than they should have. But there's a problem here. This is a larger problem for the Abrams team and for Nikima Williams, the uh, state senator who is also the new leader of the state Democratic Party. Let's go back. Let's roll the tape. That's how things sounded when you rewound the tape for those of you who are millennials. (laughs) Yes. Um, You roll the tape back to the year 2014. That's the year... Governor Nathan Deal ran against Jason Carter and Stacey Abrams formed outside groups to do voter registration you will recall that those voter registration campaign efforts are what led Stacey abrams to claim brian Kemp was suppressing the vote in 2018 see one of the things that happened that the media that's out of georgia never paid attention to and, and god bless the ajc for this they caught on to it and accurately reported it Stacey abrams filed registration paperwork for a whole bunch of people tens of thousands of people in georgia and the information was wrong So their name did not match uh, ID on a federal database that the Obama administration told Georgia could use to make sure people were legit. And when the Secretary of State's office under Brian Kemp reached out to those people to try to tell them, hey, your Social Security number's wrong or your address doesn't match right or, or what have you, those people were nowhere to be found. I mean, although those 50,000 people or so that the Abrams campaign says Brian Kemp wouldn't let register to vote, something like fourteen to 20,000 of them were from paperwork filed by the Abrams people in 2014, and the paperwork was wrong. Those people don't appear to exist. And so there have long been questions about what the money went to to get that many people registered who didn't seem to exist or have the information so bad, no one can find any of those people. Well, those groups lingered out there with money. So you had all of those groups out there. Well, some of those groups fell off and new groups sprung up. You had Power Pack Georgia, an independent group uh, funded by a liberal in San Francisco named Susan Sandler. You had uh, Higher Heights of Georgia, New York-based organization, Uh, Care in Action, which is the nonprofit uh, for domestic workers, um, co-founded by the head of the Democratic Party in Georgia. All of these groups out there. And the question is, did they coordinate with Stacey Abrams? See, under the law, these outside groups are not allowed to coordinate. They're not allowed to share information with each other. Otherwise, they become arms of the campaign. And you can't do that under campaign finance law. See, here's the thing. People have long suspected uh, that, and these are Democrats, by the way. Some of them, I, I've been talking to Democrats for, let me just, let's just back up. So when it was clear that Abrams was thinking of running after 2016, a, a number of Democrats in Georgia, on the progressive side, no less, reached out to me and said, hey, you want to start writing about Abrams? Please make sure she's on the national radar with people because we think she's wasting money from Democratic donors nationwide. Uh, We think she's basically running a con job on people about voter registration. These were Democrats telling me this. And these Democrats have for a long time suspected that much of what was going on was being coordinated. And you can't coordinate under federal law. For example, let's let's raise this to the national level. Take a presidential race. Take Donald Trump's race. Donald Trump, as the nominee, can coordinate with the Republican Party because they are are basically – he represents the party. But Donald Trump can't coordinate with, for example, uh, an outside Trump group. He can't coordinate with, you pick the conservative group you're thinking of, Citizens United, what have you. Uh, The Trump campaign can't coordinate with those groups. The Club for Growth, he can't coordinate with them because they're independent groups. And if he were to coordinate with them under the law, that would mean that they were agents of the campaign. So there's a big firewall between these groups. Now, there are certain ways around it. I mean, you can go out, for example, one of the things that a lot of candidates do is they film a bunch of footage that they have no intention of using, You put and they put it on YouTube. It's high-quality 4K footage that they put on YouTube or Vimeo. And they film all of this, and you know what? You you know what it's actually there for? It's for these third party groups to be able to take this video and use it in their ads. That's what it's there for. I'm not making that up. Go look at Mitch McConnell. Go to Mitch McConnell's YouTube page or Marco Rubio's page or, or you name it. Uh, those two, are, I know, have done this, um, but there are Democrats who do what Joe Biden has done in the past. Elizabeth Warren has done it. Uh, you, you go film this B-roll footage of the candidate talking to people, the candidate petting puppies, the candidate holding babies, the candidate sitting in an office surrounded by people who look like they're listening to his orders, nodding along. And that footage winds up in third party ads. It's put on the Internet. The usage is is changed so anybody can use it, and these third-party groups go in, they take that footage, and they make ads. That's how you get around these rules. What you cannot do is call the third-party group and say, hey, we put up the B-roll. Go shoot your ads now. You're not allowed to do that. I know it sounds silly, but that's the law. It's ridiculous, but that's the law. And there have long been Democrats in Georgia who have suspected that Stacey Abrams' campaign was not so subtly coordinating with outside groups. And the State Ethics Commission believes that's the case. In fact, what we're also seeing now is there are some nonprofit groups. And if there were nonprofit groups, nonprofit groups, 501c3s, cannot get political. They're not allowed to get political. And if it is exposed in this probe that the chairwoman of the Democratic Party set up a nonprofit to coordinate with Stacey Abrams, well, that's a big federal tax no-no. So this thing could go places if the State of the Commission is right. And that is why you have the Abrams camp and outside groups attacking Brian Kemp today, saying this is a sore winner. But, of course, I thought Brian Kemp did actually win. I mean, according to Stacey Abrams, she won. So how is it that the governor of Georgia is investigating herself? I have no idea. But according to her, she won. And this is a sore loser, I guess, Brian Kemp doing this, except that's not actually how any of this works. I realize the Democrats want to believe this, just as the Republicans want to believe it when the FEC looks at a Republican and a Democrat as the president. But that's not actually the way any of this works. It's the way people spin it to their defense. But the reality is there have long, long, even among Democrats, going back to 2014, there have been Democrats convinced that Abrams was playing fast and loose with the rules to build her campaign for governor and basically built it on a house of cards that's now beginning to collapse. And now the State Ethics Commission is looking and people are screaming about it so loudly, it makes you think maybe there's a there there. The phone number here is 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. I have a rather cool story for you. You know, some people say, well, you know, you you can't trust the accuracy of what we have in the Bible because it was written by scribes and transposed by scribes, and they can make errors over time. How do we know? Well, we have known for the last 150 years of a series of scrolls in an ark, of a Jewish synagogue that was burned. And these scrolls we know are dated to about 2,000 years ago to 2,500 years ago. So either from the time of Christ or slightly before the time of Christ, and they were housed in an ark built for a synagogue after the fall of the the temple in in AD 70. Uh, They were damaged uh, by volcanic activity, and scientists have never been able to read these scrolls. Well, they've invented so much new technology for archaeological research, including to read the Dead Sea Scrolls, that the archaeologists who have housed these scrolls, that were so brittle they could collapse, went to Israel with the scrolls and asked if they could be read. And they scanned them three-dimensionally because they're wrapped up and so it's hard to read. And so they'd be very careful with how they did it so they didn't damage the scrolls or have them disintegrate. And these scrolls are from 2,000 to 2,500 years ago, and it is the book of Leviticus. And it is the same book of Leviticus that you and I can open any Bible today and read, and everything is accurate. There haven't been changes. This is just an, another reminder of how remarkable it is that ancient text, scriptural text in particular, was passed down and transcribed over and over and over and over and over again by scribes for century after century after century, and they didn't make mistakes. They worked very hard to not make mistakes. It's just, it's, it's amazing the accuracy they were able to get out of it. Now, when we come back, Ben Shapiro under attack by the Washington Post and others today for motivating a neo-Nazi? Seriously? Erickson here on WSB, the phone number 404 872 750 1800 wsb talk You may have heard of Ben Shapiro. I assume you all know who Ben Shapiro is. You, you may not know uh, that Ben is an Orthodox Jew. Um, I've known Ben, gosh, a number of years. Uh, we used to speak together at an event down in Florida, Um Before it became anyone who dared say anything critical of the president wasn't invited anymore, (laughs) including us. Um, But he he had to arrange uh, his speaking uh, based on the Sabbath because he's very, very committed to his faith. And so it's, it's very interesting now. To see this situation in uh, Indiana, Nolan Brewer has pled guilty to charges in connection with painting swat stickers on a synagogue in Indiana and setting the yard ablaze. He's a 21-year-old man, says he doesn't deserve prison time. In fact, he says he was heavily influenced to become anti-Semitic by his wife, Kiyomi Brewer, throwing her under the bus. And the lawyer says you shouldn't put Nolan Brewer in prison because there are so many white supremacists there brainwashing people, and Nolan's wife has already brainwashed him, and he should go. And and how did how did his wife brainwash him? Well, Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro brainwashing. Is the lawyer even telling the truth? I mean, seriously, the Washington Post, by the way, is dutifully noting this. Uh, let me read you. This is, this is uh, two paragraphs, three paragraphs from the Washington Post. Brewer's case has found its way into the national spotlight since the ruling, not because of discourse over the length of a sentence, but because of a name Ansel mentioned in his sentencing memo, conservative commentator, Daily Wire editor, Chief Ben Shapiro. Ansel argued that Brewer's radicalization was heavily influenced by what his wife, who was 17 at the time of the crime, had read online. According to Nolan, she began with right-wing yet mainstream views such as those presented on Fox News. She then moved on to writings by Ben Shapiro and articles on Breitbart News, which bridged the gap to the notorious White supremacist and anti-Semitic propaganda site Stormfront, Nolan brought bought into the propaganda. Shapiro and other conservative commentators have taken to social media to defend Shapiro's work, arguing his identity as an Orthodox Jew made him unlikely to be the source for his uh, Brewer's anti-Semitic ideals and actions. You think? I mean, the left is having a field day over this, uh, claiming that Ben Shapiro led a guy to become a neo-Nazi. Ben Shapiro is Orthodox Ben Shapiro is hated by the neo-Nazis. Ben Shapiro, when he travels now, has to have security because the neo-Nazi death threats against him. And yet, this, this is just this is all crazy. And the media is playing this up. The the um yeah, I mean, listen, listen to this other one. This is fantastic. Shapiro is a leading conservative voice among millennials, a Harvard law graduate with millions of social media followers. He has criticized President Trump, but upholds many of the same views as the conservatives who support the president do, including outlawing abortion, repealing Obamacare, I think they call it Affordable Care Act, and cutting taxes. And he previously worked for so so he's criticized the president, but upholds many of the views that you know white supremacists hold, like like anti-abortion laws and what. Oh my. God. Gosh, I should say. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, this, the, the media is willing to do this, but they're not willing to have an honest conversation about something else and something more direct and more relevant. So th- this gets into how the media is maliciously partisan here, maliciously and willfully partisan. You, We've got a story. It, it, BuzzFeed is running the story. The Washington Post is running the story They basically Ben Shapiro... Cause someone to become a neo-Nazi because that guy's wife read Ben Shapiro. That's the the argument. They're allowing the guy's lawyer to make a sympathetic case for him by blaming Ben Shapiro instead of the guy having to take responsibility for himself. You know where the media has not dwelled on these conversations? What about Floyd Lee Corkins? Floyd Lee Corkins read on the Southern Poverty Law Center site that the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C., Uh, was a hate group that wanted to uh, harm gay rights. So he bought a bunch of Chick-fil-A sandwiches and went to the Family Research Council and decided to gun them all down and stuff their mouths with those bigoted chicken sandwiches from Chick-fil-A. He was stopped by a guard, but Floyd Lee Corkins said he got his information from the Southern Poverty Law Center. James Hodgkinson was also a fan of the Southern Poverty Law Center. He decided to try a mass assassination of Republicans while at a baseball practice. Notice how much time the media is spending attacking Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew, for causing someone to become an anti-Semitic neo-Nazi, but we've never had these same conversations about Floyd Lee Corkins and James Hodgkinson being radicalized by the left. In fact, that's the way it always happens. The media never actually wants to have the conversation about progressives being radicalized by progressive outlets, but they always want to blame people like Ben Shapiro, Rush Limbaugh, me, Fox News, you name it, for radicalizing someone on the right. That's not a bias, and you need to understand that. You're thinking, oh, this is media bias. It's not media bias. If it was one time or in one way, it would be media bias. But this is willful partisanship by the media because you've got multiple examples of progressives who are radicalized by the left And the media cover story, do you remember the guy who went into the Discovery Channel's headquarters outside of Washington, D.C., shot the place up, held hostages, and the prevailing media narrative while this was going on is that this this must be a right-winger who's trying to shut down... A faithful climate change organization that gets the story out. And it turns out it was a progressive nut job who was radicalized off of watching Al Gore's um, nonsense, uh, whatever his video was, and, and decided that the Discovery Channel was not doing enough and they needed to be punished for not doing enough to help with climate change. The story went away. It went away. Remember the guy who decided to crash the airplane into the IRS in Texas and it turns out he was a communist? Yet the story went away the moment it was a progressive. It's always when it's a conservative, the media decides a conservative is to blame. Some conservative mouthpiece is to blame for radicalizing some neo-Nazi. But when it's a progressive terrorist, no, we can't have these conversations anymore. We can't have them. We we can't draw false equivalents, none of that stuff. It happens time and time again, and it's always the media refusing to even engage on left-wing radicalization. In a way that here's a story where some guy's 17 year old wife apparently read Fox News and Ben Shapiro, and Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew who's hated by neo Nazis, suddenly caused this guy to become a neo Nazi. The whole thing is crap. But you would never know that by reading the media because the media has fully gone in to being leftist. Think of the stories. That you're hearing in the news about Netflix abandoning Georgia. It's not abandoning Georgia. It's not changing the status quo. None of this stuff is happening. And yet the media is all in on, oh, this abortion law is going to harm Georgia's economy. Nothing's happened. Hearing stories about Hollywood producers pulling out of Georgia, you know, none of them actually had commitments in Georgia. You, you would never know that from the media reports. Like the people scouting for locations in Savannah, they didn't even have a deal yet. There are left-wing agitators involved in the handmaid cell. Of course these left-wing purists are going to bolt, but are Disney and Netflix? No, so the story today has to be Netflix might actually do something, maybe, possibly, in the future if something happens, maybe. The media has become part of the partisan antagonism in this country. And for all the hand-wringing about a divided country, the media is helping in that division. (laughs) Can we all agree, please, that the North Koreans are awful and a terrible regime, and we would be better off if they were wiped off the face of the map instead of coddled? I, I'm, I am count me among the conservatives who are perturbed with the president and, and how he's handled North Korea. Um, I, I, I appreciate he wanted to try something different, but I don't think we're getting anywhere with trying something different. And I just, yeah, North Korea is bad. Let's let's not pretend otherwise.